This is Leif Erickson, Insights Partner at Momenta. Welcome to our Digital Industry Podcast Series. In these podcasts, we capture insights from some of the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They are executives, entrepreneurs, consultants, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is, like the team here at Momenta Partners, they are deep industry practitioners. We hope you find these podcasts informative and we welcome your comments. Good day, everyone, and welcome to the latest Momenta podcast. My name is Leif Erickson, Insights Partner at Momenta, and our guest today is Heather Engel, Cyber Strategist and Managing Partner at Strategic Cyber Partners. She is an advisor to government and industry on risk management, cyber planning, and security program development. Welcome, Heather, and please start by sharing with our audience a little of your background and how you became a trusted advisor in the cyber arena. Hi, Leif, and thank you very much. Thanks for having me on the podcast uh, today. Um, I'll start just by telling you a little bit about myself. Um, I have been doing cybersecurity for close to 20 years now, even before we called it security. Um, back then, it was just IT and, and locking down different types of information systems. Um, I actually started with uh, getting an advertising degree from Penn State, of all things, and um, very quickly realized that um, information technology and databases and programming was an area of interest. And so I went back to school, um, got a little more training, and then uh, was placed on a contract working for the Department of Defense. And so um, as I was working with the DOD, I got to see some, some really amazing things in my career. I did that uh, in various capacities, everything from exercises and training to certification and compliance. Um, over the course of my time with the DOD and, and various capacities, I worked with all branches of the service. was very fortunate to work with some really amazing people as I was doing that. Um, and then came out and, and started working in the commercial world. And so what I found when I transitioned to working cybersecurity in the commercial space was that in the government, there's a lot of regulations. And, and you know, we make jokes about government red tape, but in terms of security and standards and configuration management, there was a lot that the government required of their systems and networks that just wasn't being done in the private sector. And so I've been working in the commercial space for the last seven years. And it's been a, a great transition. Really interesting. I've had the chance to work with some really amazing clients. Great. It sounds like a great uh, career so far. Uh, tell me, what do you think that has changed in cybersecurity since you started? You mentioned that, you know, back then at the beginning, it wasn't even referred to as cybersecurity. But <laughs> I know there's been fundamental changes in the in the course of your career. Uh, maybe share a little bit about what you think has changed and what's most significantly different today than it was at the beginning. Yeah, definitely. So when I went back and was was starting to really get my hands into IT, the focus was was truly on understanding networks, um, how they communicated. The focus was on um, creating and and working with some of the programming languages. That's how we make everything talk to each other. Um, and we didn't call it cybersecurity. We were doing things 
to configure our workstations and configure our servers in a way um, so as to make them a little bit more secure. But we really were focusing on the lockdown piece of it. And we did defense. We didn't do a lot of offense. Um, Obviously, since then, the number of devices that we've had to secure and the type of devices that we have to secure now are is exponentially larger. And I think to some extent, we don't fully understand the impacts of all the things that are now coming online. Um, and we call this the, you know, the internet of things where everything has an internet connection and we don't fully understand the impacts, um, of, of what that means for how it is going to change and how cybersecurity is going to change in the future. Um, you know, one of the other really big changes is that when I first started, all of this was considered an IT problem. So it was someone at the help desk or it was a network administrator or a systems administrator who was working to secure these devices. Now, what we've started to see and, and where we're really making progress is we've elevated cybersecurity to be more of a risk management problem. And it's gotten the attention of the executive level. Um, and that's really where it has to be. We, we don't play by the same rules as the criminal who is trying to access your information or who's trying to knock over your network and, and give you some downtime. They play by a whole different set of rules. And so we're having to really change our thinking from this defensive strategy to really pulling everything in and having it be a total risk management strategy. Yeah, that's that's interesting. The that that begs another question, which is is it is it just the criminal? I mean, you know, what you've just laid out, if if I'm an industry leader, I'm I'm getting very nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, as you say, the complexity has gone up by an order of magnitude in terms of what needs to be done to secure uh, all of the different things that are that are connected to my systems. Um, and I think that would keep me up at night. So, you know, is is it just the the criminals that I need to worry about, or is it is is it, are there other risks, so to speak, uh, that that you know have to be addressed by cybersecurity? Mm-hmm. There, yeah, there's there are a lot of risks, and so obviously, a cyber criminal is one risk. But what we are realizing now at the executive level is that we have massive amounts of data, and that data can be used for good. For example, and I know you and I are going to talk a little bit about operational technology today. That type of data is something that we can use to transform the way that we do business. And so we can look at a system and we can make predictive analysis to say, this system is going to need maintenance or this system needs to be replaced. We can do really phenomenal things with that data, but that also poses a risk. Um, The more data that you have, the more information that you have to protect that someone else a cyber criminal or otherwise could potentially want. Um, you know, and we talk a lot about the amount of information, the, the Privacy Act that we're now seeing, the public publicly available information versus my personal information. So we don't just have to worry about cyber criminals. It's very easy for 
something as simple as a misconfiguration in a system to leak data. And we see that in the news all the time, um, you know, where a database was placed on the open internet and it was out there for anyone to see. And, and that was just an unintentional, um, unintentional error versus someone actively trying to access that information. So the, the complexity of our networks and, and the sheer amount of data creates a lot more issues than just the cyber criminal aspect of it. And so I will tell you, you know, you're not alone when you're thinking this is the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night. I think there are a lot of executives, both cybersecurity and otherwise, that are awake at three in the morning thinking about these kinds of things. Yeah, I, I can imagine, and they should be. Um, so you touched on the issue of operational technology, and and of course, there's been a lot of talk in the year over the years, uh, recent years anyway, uh, the difference between information technology and operational technology, and and I'm sure there are differences in terms of, you know, how you approach each from a cybersecurity perspective. Can you comment on on those differences and 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 how cybersecurity? Um, varies depending on whether it's sort of an IT domain versus an OT domain? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, and this is something that in order to really talk about this, we need to understand the difference between IT, which is information technology, and OT, which is operational technology. So in, in very simplistic terms, IT deals with information, and we can almost think of that like a service. Operational technology deals with machines that create products typically, whether that product is energy that supplies a city or a town, or whether that project is a widget that's being manufactured. And so again, that's a really simplistic way of putting it, but if you're putting it in terms of a service versus a product, we market those things very differently. We typically are selling to different types of people. Um, we have different rules and regulations in place for a service versus a product. And we have different ways, if we are to bring it back around to cybersecurity, we have different ways and different types of things that we need to protect. So when we look at operational technology, and I talked a little bit already about the massive amounts of data that are generated, operational technology is, is, some play, is a field that we're just really starting to tap into with the amounts of data that are being generated. And that's where we're starting to see some of the really forward-thinking organizations starting to move towards digital transformation. And so what that's doing then is the digital transformation aspect is, is really starting to create this dovetail, this crossover between the information as a service and the machines as a product we're finding now that we can take information that's generated by this, these operational technology systems and we can monetize it. We can use it to troubleshoot. We can use it to transform the way organizations do business and even create new product sets or new services that we can then turn around and offer to our customers. So that's just sort of a, a primer on the differences between IT and OT. And again, it's very, very simplistic um, way of putting it. The thing to remember about operational technology is that it's not new. It's been around for a really long time. But in the past, if you think of a manufacturing plant floor, we typically have put the systems on the plant floor and 
this the cyber strategy or the security strategy has been to isolate it and leave it alone. Whereas information technology has always been about networks and communications. OT systems tend to have a closed nature. And so the more our OT systems converge with IT systems, the more we need to apply some of the same rules and some of the same thinking that we do for IT to our OT systems. And that's very difficult. Um, you know, what we find in a lot of cases is that operational technology, just you, you can't apply the same types of information technology rules and, and um, things to secure the information as you can to an IT system. Um, right, you know, but... Yeah, operational technology just doesn't support a lot of the um, regulations and best practices that are out there. And that's very difficult for, for a lot of my clients. Right, that that makes sense. Uh, it's a, just a, a whole different world and a whole different philosophy, for sure. The the other sort of duality that I'd like to explore with you, that where there there's you know uh, sometimes perceived to be a relationship and other times not, is the the relationship between cybersecurity and physical security. You know, they're often viewed as independent of each other, but as as we know from some cybersecurity incidents. Um, that the the um, the problem got into the system through a, a breakdown in physical security. Um, the, you know, the the classic example of that is is Stuxnet, and uh, that you know Sneakernet. You know I could go back to when I first started in the uh, in the technology business. You know the way we moved things around was you you put things on a disk and you moved it from one system to another. We just didn't have the, mm -hmm. the networks even internally. Um, that's still possible, of course, as long as there's some sort of physical way for someone to plug into a, a machine, if they can get behind the, the uh, physically get inside someone's uh, uh, perimeter, if you will, uh, there could be problems. So what are your thoughts on that? How does that, how does that play out? How should companies um, sort of approach that relationship? Mm -hmm. So a lot of the work that I do with my clients is helping them understand how their, um, how their security needs to be applied in the context of, let's say, regulatory compliance. So I work with a lot of clients, particularly in the manufacturing space, who are making things for the United States government. And they have very specific compliance mandates in their contracts that they have to adhere to. Um, part of those mandates, and, and we can look across the domain of cybersecurity risk management, and we can find physical requirements or physical security requirements as part of just about every compliance mandate out there. So whether you're looking at payment card industry, the data security standards, whether you're looking at NIST, um, they all include a, a section on physical security. However, we can also flip that around and say, when we're doing our physical security, there is absolutely a cyber component to that. So they both impact the other. Uh, you know, I'd, I would say that in, in many situations, they're almost equal in terms of one doesn't overrule the other. So I'll give you an example. If you're talking about um, an access control system. So 
if I go into my company's headquarters, we have a badge reader that I have to swipe my badge before I get access to the spaces. Well, that's a cyber system or that's an IT system that controls my physical security. On the flip side of that, the physical security, I think as, as humans, we have this tendency to want to be polite. We want to help other people. We have this sense of empathy. And we see this all the time in companies that have done social engineering type penetration testing where someone dressed in um, you know, nice clothes with a clipboard, maybe they have a logo on their shirt, have been able to walk right into secured spaces without any kind of cybersecurity controls that are stopping them. So, you know, that then is, is a breach of the physical security that didn't require any technology. But then once they're in there, as you mentioned, you know, sneaker netting, we can bring in a USB drive plug it into a system. Maybe I've come in with a laptop. I can plug that system into, sometimes I can plug it right into the wall and get access to the network. Um, if we haven't put the proper um, physical and network security controls in place. So, so they definitely impact the other. And, you know, you mentioned Stuxnet. One of the things that to go back a little bit to some of the operational technology Stuxnet was first identified in, in 2010. There are, you know, there, there is reasoning that to think that it was actually being developed as early as five years before that. Um, but it bridged the air gap through the use of USB, which is a, a portable storage drive. Um, and that's a, is still an issue today where, um, particularly in, in the Department of Defense several years ago, you know, they outlawed USB drives for, for reasons that were similar to Stuxnet. And this is something that companies are struggling with today. They want their employees to be able to take that information and maybe they have a business need for doing it. You know, one of my clients um, provides information back to their clients and the way that they give it to them is on a USB drive. So that's a business need for them. They can't just say, we don't allow this. Um, because that would be a massive shift in in how they do business. So kinetic effects are really a big concern when we start talking about the convergence of information technology and operational technology. That means that our operational technology and our physical systems take on some of the risk of information technology systems. Wow. So again, <laughs> I'm listening to all this and I'm going, you know, a lot of challenges. So if you're if you're advising, and and again, I don't know, you know, what the stats are, but I have to think, based on my own experience, that a lot of companies still treat these things differently: physical security, and and uh, and cybersecurity. Uh, you know, ITOT. When you go in and advise executives. How do you, what do you tell them in terms of how they should approach it? Should, is there, is there, should there be one organization? Should there be a committee? How do you, how do you bring everybody together to make sure that everybody's in sync, that the, the, the strategy uh, is in sync, is effective? Yeah. And this is, this is a really great question because I've worked with clients before. And when we start to look at the physical security, 
um, or some of the other aspects even of personnel security, because personnel security really in a lot of ways impacts the physical security. If you have someone leave your organization, whether by choice or whether um, because they've been let go for some reason, and you don't have the proper personnel security controls in place to even do things like collect that person's badge or collect their keys, then you've created a physical security vulnerability because that person could walk right back in at any time. And so it's really interesting because I've worked with some clients who, when you finally get all these people in the room, you know, you get the person who's in charge of HR, you get the person who's in charge of physical security along with the IT teams and maybe some executive leadership. I've been in rooms before where they're introducing themselves to each other and saying hello for the first time. And so that's really a challenge. And, and the, the way that we approach that is different for every organization. So for a service-based organization, or, you know, let's say, let's take um, an organization that provides cloud services as an example, I would approach it very differently with that cloud service organization um, than I would with a company that is manufacturing parts for an aircraft. Um, and so a lot of it depends on the business risk and the business need and, and what is the mission of the organization. Um, that's something that we have to take that into account when we're doing our cybersecurity, when we're putting together a strategy for the organization. It's not one size fits all anymore. We can't just take a compliance checklist and and say, well, you have to apply this no matter what. You, you've got to start really at the organizational level, look at the threats to that organization, look at what they're doing. You know, why are they in business? They're they're typically not in business to apply cybersecurity checklists, right? right. They're in business because they're selling something, whether they're selling it to consumers or whether they're selling it to other organizations. Um, you know, they're in business because they have a mission to deliver something. And so our security strategy has to fit the business mission. It has to take into account the risk um, and the type of operations that they do. Otherwise, it doesn't work for anybody. And the minute that I leave or the minute that the the CISO who's left behind, stop, you know, it, it is has a minute to, to sit down and breathe, the whole thing's going to fall apart if it's, if it's not um, specific to the organization. So, you know, we, we joke about it depends being the typical consulting answer, but it really does depend on sure. the type of organization that you're running and, and what you're trying to do. Your, your security has to support that. Otherwise, culturally, it's never going to take hold. It makes perfect sense. And it goes back to your point earlier that this has to be executive led. You know, the, the days of this this whole exercise being led by, you know, the head of cybersecurity, so to speak, versus the, the CEO or, or some part of the executive, uh, I think, are past. So I want to change gears a little bit. Um, you know, one of the, the, the technologies that's got a lot of attention uh, lately, and one, one could call it hype, um, is blockchain and and people you know the big buzz around blockchain is it's this inherently secure way to conduct transactions and and so you know when I hear something like that I say okay that's great so does that mean you don't need cybersecurity what are the impacts on cybersecurity um, is this uh, have you thought about this a bit what are, what are your perspectives on 
you know, the sort of blockchain and, and you know, how cybersecurity might fit into to that world. Sure. Okay, so I think to have a conversation about blockchain, we need to understand a little bit about it at a very high level. So when we talk about cybersecurity, we typically look at it in the context of confidentiality, integrity, and availability. And we hear blockchain thrown about, you'll, you'll see it in articles, you'll see it in the news media. You know, you may have sat in a meeting where someone said, we should use blockchain for this. So it's worth noting then that there are different kinds of blockchain. So there's the public blockchain, um, which anyone can be a part of. And then there is a private blockchain, which say, for example, I were going to develop an application and I wanted to make sure that the transactions within that application could not be disputed. But I don't want just the general public to have access to that blockchain. So I'm going to create what's called a private blockchain. Um, and then we can also create a hybrid blockchain, which is which combines the best or the worst of both worlds, depending on who you ask. So in the case of um, cybersecurity of the blockchain, we have to first understand if we're talking about the public blockchain or if we're talking about a private blockchain. Um, if I'm talking about integrity and availability, those two go hand in hand because the way blockchain works is all transactions are public and anyone can see the transactions that are happening in a blockchain. So I'll give you an example. You, could, you can, in a lot of cases, um, trace a, a ransomware transaction or multiple ransomware transactions back to a specific account. Um, in you know, working with past clients, when they were um, faced with paying a ransom on ransomware, very often you're given the number, you can trace it back and you can see who else has paid that ransom. Now, you can't attribute it typically to a company or a specific person, but you can say, okay, this person has made $500 in payments from ransomware. However, unless the account holder discloses their details, their privacy is typically maintained. Once you get to the point of finding the account, seeing the transactions that are associated with the account, it's very difficult typically to understand who's behind the account. So that's where... Um, the confidentiality piece comes in. That's not to say you can't ever figure out who it is, but what the blockchain really does is it removes a central authority, which could be compromised, and it puts the security of the transaction or the integrity of a transaction across multiple nodes. So any one of the nodes can confirm a single transaction, which then means if I've made a payment somewhere, it's going to be recorded across several nodes instead of just in one place. Um, so it removes that, that central authority. Right, so right. What does this mean for cybersecurity? Well, there are a lot of experiments going on um, you know, in the DOD and in other sectors to understand how blockchain can be used to create more robust platforms um, and and start to implement it in terms of what can we really do with this? How can we make this so that transactions are indisputable, but so that we are also keeping and maintaining the confidentiality of data? And, and so how blockchain is used 
really depends on the organization that's trying to implement it and whether they're trying to use public or private or hybrid, that all really goes back to how you're going to secure it and how you're going to put it in place. And again, there, there we come back to that same old, it depends answer. It, it really fluctuates based on what you're trying to do and how you're trying to implement it. That was your, yeah. that was a little bit of blockchain, um, you know, education, because I think we see that word thrown about so much and, and there's a real lack of understanding of what it actually means and what it does. Yeah, no, it, it, uh, there's no question about that. And, and, uh, you know, what you're saying there is there, there may be some inherent conflict, you know, conflicts depending on what you're trying to use it for. Uh, we often hear about it in terms of the, the, the financial transaction, but, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of buzz and hype about using it for, you know, non-financial transactions. And what does that mean? And, you know, it's uh, definitely, we have a lot of work to do there. It sounds like. Mm -hmm. And I would say too, this is, this is a question of choosing the right technology to solve the problem versus choosing a technology that may not be the right fit or the right solution, but it's got a lot of hype, right? And, and that doesn't right. just apply to blockchain. It applies to um, a lot of security products across the industry. Do you want the one that has the fanciest advertising and that gives you the nicest swag when you go to conferences, or do you want one that actually fits and does what you need it to do? And, and blockchain is, is no different. In some situations, it's, it's a great tool. In other situations, maybe it's not the right one. Yeah, great point. Great point. Um, so tell me, we've talked, uh, I think, a bit about these. Touch us in, in a number of different ways. But what are the characteristics of an organization with a good cybersecurity strategy? And maybe it maybe it's broader than that. Maybe it's a good risk management strategy um, that that encompasses cybersecurity. And 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 also, if if you have any, if you can share any examples, um, that would be great. Uh, of course, I understand that you. You have confidentiality agreements with your clients. So maybe in, in generalities, you could share some examples. Yeah. And we, we touched on this a little bit already, but one of the characteristics of an organization with a good cybersecurity strategy is that they have not just tried to check boxes. So most organizations now have some sort of compliance mandate that they have to adhere to whether it's payment card industry, whether it's NERC SIP, whether we're talking about NIST. Um, and these are, these are things that have grown and changed even just since I've been doing commercial work for you know, the last six or seven years, where there were a lot of organizations and industries when I started that really didn't have any cybersecurity mandates that applied to them. And so you know, your question about what is the characteristic of a, an organization with a good cybersecurity strategy. A good cybersecurity strategy is part of an overall business and risk management strategy. So I say business first, um, you know, risk management is second. We already talked about, we have to know and understand what the mission of our business is in order to then start to evaluate the risk. Um, as you're starting to implement your cybersecurity strategy, you know, especially if you have a new mandate that you have to comply with, there is 
a real tendency to just go to the checklist and start working through it. And in most cases, that is is going to cause your your folks who are trying to work through that checklist to just start pulling out their hair. Because if you're not looking at it in the context of risk tolerance for your organization, it's going to be very difficult to make decisions about you know, what does our network boundary need to look like or what kind of access controls do we need to have in place? Well, until we understand the risks and the threats to our particular industry and to our particular business, it's very hard to make those decisions. So, you know, some organizations may be required to have multi-factor authentication. Multi-factor authentication means that we start to move away from using passwords and we use other ways to access our systems. Um, for the record, this is a best practice. I highly recommend it. But in a lot of organizations, that's just not going to work across their entire network. So an example would be a manufacturing company. You may be able to apply multi-factor authentication to the IT side. So um, you know your business team, your finance team, the folks who are logging in and sitting at a desk and managing information, yes, you can, you can very easily implement multi-factor authentication and it's highly recommended that you do. But on the operational technology side, that same company that's a manufacturing company, very often they're running manufacturing systems um, using an account that is attributed to the machine versus to a specific person. And that's going to be more difficult to, to implement multi-factor authentication. Um, you know, some of the other, some of the other um, characteristics would be you absolutely have to have your executive buy-in. Culturally, this is something that you cannot do alone. You can't do it just with IT. Um, you can't even do it just with a risk management team or, you know, in some cases, the legal team is really leading the charge of, of securing infrastructure because they recognize the impact that a loss of data will have on the organization. And so you have to have executive level buy-in across the organization in order to create that maturity. And when I say buy-in, I don't mean just, you know, the executive team saying, yeah, good job, go get them. They've also got to be willing to sign the checks that are going to, um, that are going to assign resources and allow the different teams within the organization to, to procure the resources that they need. Um, once you can understand how cybersecurity works with your business goals, it becomes much easier to create this level of maturity. But, you know, remember it, it goes back to the risk of the organization and, and really remembering that cybersecurity is just one risk that we have to manage. Um, I think the data plays a big role too. Looking at the type of information that we have, the amount of information that we have, um, one of the easiest ways in a lot of organizations to reduce risk is to simply have a data retention policy and follow it. So if, if our data retention policy says we don't need to keep information easily accessible and online for longer than a year or two years, removing that data, maybe archiving it, you don't have to get rid of it, but you take it offline where it becomes less vulnerable. And so things like this are, are all examples of of what makes a good cybersecurity strategy that, that's interesting and that, that that also begs another question which is 
Well, you talk about it depends on the data, and you mentioned mm -hmm. one example, but are there also examples of data that it just doesn't matter? Absolutely. I mean, we sometimes get, you know, we say, oh, we've got to secure all data. That creates a massive cost for us when in fact there's portions of that data that it that really doesn't matter it's it's you know let it let it let it be free so to speak <laughs> yeah absolutely and and some of the most mature organizations that i've worked with will have um it'll be you know sometimes it's called a, a data confidentiality strategy um essentially what they've done is they've classified their data you know and the best example of this is the united states government we have unclassified data that is that is free to access. We've got unclassified data that might be for official use. And then we have varying levels of classification that go up, right, from secret all the way to compartmented information. So that's a great example there, but that's not to say that you have to be the size and scope and have the level of critical data that the United States government has. You know, within your organization, you might have data on employees that is um, protected health information. You might have, you will have personally identifiable information. If you're a research company, um, I work with a number of universities on this. They're performing research that, make no mistake about it, foreign nations want to get their hands on that type of information. Um, so we may protect that information a little bit differently than we would, for example, a press release about what the university is doing for a football weekend. So there are absolutely different types of data and, and your data classification system doesn't have to be complicated. It can be as simple as publicly releasable, protected, um, and then need to know type of information where only the people who are required to have access to that information have access to it. So if I work in human resources, I probably need access to employees' personally identifiable information and maybe even protected health information to put their benefits plan together. But someone like me who is a business analyst or someone sitting in the IT group, they don't need access to that type of data on employees across the organization. So I think when we look at security and we look at maturity specifically, it really starts with the data. And this, this kind of brings our conversation almost full circle because we started out by talking about how much data is being generated now um, with every device. Every time you, you touch a device that is interconnected, you're generating data. Even if you have one of those smart refrigerators in your home, every time you open the door, every time you touch the screen and ask it to do something, you're generating data. And, and so our security maturity really does go back to what type of data we have, how we classify it. And you're absolutely right when you say we don't protect everything the same way. So that, those, that, that also raises some interesting, some good points and also raises some additional points, which is when you talk about that connected refrigerator, lots of people want to get that data, right? The grocery... <laughs> You know, the, your local uh, grocery store wants to get it. The refrigerator manufacturer wants to get it. Uh, maybe your utility wants to get it. Know how much energy that that is. And and so my next question is really, where do we go from here? The world is changing so fast. It has changed, of course, over the course of your varied career. Um, and so you know it's it's going to continue to change. Of course, one of the changes is that 
you know, more and more data is going in the cloud uh, for, for a variety of reasons. So how does, what is it, what are the implications for cybersecurity? How does it change going forward? Is it more the same, just we've got to be more rigorous about it, or is there some fundamental change that's going to have to happen uh, in the future? Yeah, I, this is a really almost a philosophical question, isn't it? Um, right. I think when we look at how things are going to change in the future, there's a couple things that we can look at that are happening right now. So, you know, for the last however many years, we've gone online, we've provided our information to all of these free services and social media. And most people, I would venture, have never read a single privacy policy that says, here's what we're going to do with your data. And that's starting to change. We're starting to see a push at the regulatory level to change what companies can do with your data. Because you're absolutely right when you say um, the utility company wants to know how you're using your heating and your air conditioning system, because that's what they're going to use to create their digital transformation strategy. Um, so there's starting to be, I think, a lot more consumer awareness of what's being done with their data. Um, and in a lot of cases now, we're starting to question a little bit more what, what that data is being used for. And, and we saw great examples of that um, with Facebook kind of being raked over the coals in the last couple of years for a number of different incidents stemming from privacy and what they did with user data. Um, we've seen the California Consumer Privacy Act um, get closer and closer, and we're going to see implement, implementation of that, um, I believe it's the end of this year. You know, Nevada and Vermont have similar laws. CCPA is really the one that has got, garnered the most attention, but there are states that are starting to do similar things with data. So when we look at how all this data is going to change the way we do things going forward, I think that there's going to be um, some of it, some of it will really be driven by consumers and, and how much they decide that they're going to care about what they share online. And, um, you know, you mentioned cloud services. That's another um, really interesting problem because there are many companies who don't have the resources and we hear all the time about the cybersecurity labor shortage it's very hard to hire people who can secure your systems. And cybersecurity is such a varied disciplined field that anyone who claims to be an expert in all of it is probably not an expert in anything and may not be someone that you want to hire, which means that in order to manage our cloud systems, we need a different type of skill set than we do to help oversee and drive our risk management strategy. And we need a different type of skill set if we're going to be programming applications or creating APIs that allow systems to talk to each other than if we're building out a new network architecture. And I think a lot of the time, you know, cybersecurity gets lumped into this one big job field, and it really is a, a multivaried discipline. So to go circle back kind of to the problem of cloud, just because something is in Amazon Web Services or it's in the Microsoft Cloud doesn't mean that it's properly secured. 
And this is, this is kind of a pet peeve for me when I'm looking at the security of different systems and different applications. If it just says, you know, we're secure because we sit in Amazon Web Services, well, that to me doesn't tell me anything about your security except for the fact that you don't really know what you're talking about. Um, if I'm going to put something in Amazon Web Services, yes, the capability for it to be very secure is there. But we've seen numerous cases over even just the last 18 months of systems that have been sitting in Amazon Web Services and they've been misconfigured and they're leaking data. Um, so just by the nature of having part of your infrastructure in the cloud doesn't make it more secure. Um, now that you- said, one, yeah, one of the reasons to go to the cloud is because of what I just said about cybersecurity talent. It's, it's difficult to find someone who um, can do all of the things. Right? And so we'll outsource in a lot of cases to a managed security service provider or just a managed service provider, or we outsource by putting some of our data in the cloud in the hopes that that company that's, giving, that's providing that service offering has the experts, and they're going to help you secure that data in a way that maybe you wouldn't be able to because of resource constraints. Right, right. You know, I, I, it's interesting, I, and, I, and I think what you're saying, but correct me if I'm wrong, is that the cloud can be a way to, to particularly with the right service provider, the one, one that has the resources, can be a, a way to um, create a higher level of security for your data than you could do yourself because of uh, limited resources. But that doesn't mean you abdicate any responsibility for that, that security. Absolutely, and, and that's a mistake that so many companies make is they think that we've just shoved everything to the cloud and now it's the service provider's problem. And in most cases, it's not. You know, they're, they're going to write a contract that favors their business. And so it's up to the company to look at the terms and conditions of the contract and to look at and understand things like, what happens to my data if I want to change cloud service providers? What happens if I want to move it? Is this company obligated to help me move it? Or am I totally on my own for that transition? Um, what are my uptime guarantees? What happens if the company has a breach? What happens if the cloud service provider has a breach? And these are things that we find when we look at some of these contracts, they're not very well defined. And so a company may think that they're really well protected when in fact they're not protected at all and they don't have the resources that they think they're going to in the event of a data breach. Right. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So this has been uh, this has been a very enlightening conversation. Do you have any uh, closing thoughts and and also we we like to ask our guests, you know, what they've been reading recently? What do they think is an interesting book that they could share with the audience? Uh, it doesn't have to be in cybersecurity, whatever uh, has piqued your interest uh, recently. So okay. yeah, some closing thoughts and maybe a thought on, on some good reading. Yeah, well, you know, I mentioned early in the conversation that, that my background um, and my degree is actually in advertising and then I've gone on to do, um, you know, numerous certifications and things in the, in the technology field. But I, I feel like really one element of a good cyber strategist is a multidisciplined approach. And, and so none of the reading material that I'm going to recommend really has anything to do with cybersecurity, but it does have a lot to do with sort of expanding your horizons a little bit. So there's a book that I finished recently called Essentialism. 
um, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less, and it's by Greg McCune. And really just a great book and and very relevant when you're looking at cybersecurity and, and what we talked about today, because it talks about really identifying what's essential um, to happiness, what's essential to the goal that you're trying to accomplish, and then what happens to all of the other sort of noise and, and some of the arbitrary things and how those can really distract you from meeting your goal. Um, so I really like that one. And another one I'm working my way through right now is Emotional Intelligence 2.0. Um, it's by Gene Greaves. And I'm enjoying that book immensely. I haven't finished it yet, so I can't talk too much about it. But you know, suffice to say, a lot of what we do in cybersecurity and in this risk management field um, doesn't have to be strictly technical. A lot of it is really just understanding what the problem is um, that my client is trying to solve and, and what are the challenges that they've had. And so a lot of that, I think, goes back to what we know as EQ um, versus IQ. Perfect. That's probably one I, I, I should read. <laughs> I'm accused <laughs> of not having a high EQ. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, this has been wonderful, uh, Heather. Um, and so thanks thanks for sa uh, sharing your insights. This has uh, been Leif Erickson, Insights Partner Momenta, and our guest has been Heather Ingle, Managing Partner at Strategic Cyber Partners. Thank you again, Heather. Thank you. This is Leif Erickson, Insights Partner Momento. Thank you for listening today and please share with us what you found useful, as well as your own perspectives on digital industry. 